Buddhist Geeks, exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What's the sound of one geek giving? Find out at BuddhistGeeks.com slash give. I have an impossible task this morning. I want to tell you in great detail about some material I think is extremely important for the future of Buddhism, and I don't have hardly any time at all. So I'm going to not do the usual systematic way I do of bringing in evidence and showing how things move from one spot to another, but try to give you some highlights. But I am going to try to leave about 20 minutes for discussion and questions afterwards so we can get into more detail on at least uh, some of those. And I'll be around through the rest of the weekend for talking about. Two of those words in the title slide there are very important, science and scientism. We'll keep coming back to that. I'm always a little worried when I talk about science anymore because science has acquired a bad taste in a lot of people's mind. Um, for a lot of people, science is that wonderful, all-pervasive knowledge that has shown that any and all kinds of spirituality are basically a lot of crap. Uh, scientism makes that claim. Science doesn't. I'm going to keep coming back to this point over and over and say why. I also want to make it clear that I'm not one of these people who think that science is the only way to get to decent knowledge about anything. Science is a very good knowledge refinement system. It's not the only way to get good knowledge about things. And in fact, what I call essential science, the core of really doing it right, is a continuous, never-ending process. When we think of science now, we think of equations and gadgets and things like that. Those are products that have come out of the particular knowledge acquisition process. But science itself, essential science, is, as I say, a never-ending process for knowledge acquisition, refinement, and application. But, of course, it's practiced by human beings. So how many of you in your basic science courses were taught the theory of gravity? Were you taught the theory of gravity or the law of gravity? The law. Who made it a law? That's, that's a psychological step, actually, that shows we have an awful lot of confidence in something. And so, of course, then when you hear, as I did recently from a colleague about St. Joseph of Cupertino, 14th century Catholic saint, pretty ignorant monk, but he'd get into these raptures and he'd float up in the air, and thousands of people saw him at one time or another. The church kept moving him off to more obscure monasteries because he would mess up the ceremonies, you know? They'd be having a wonderful holy procession to the church, and he'd get all enraptured, and he'd float up in the air and float there for 10 minutes while the... Oh, God, go, go get a ladder from the village. We'll have to get him down from the tree when he comes out of this ecstatic state. So, but... Thousands of people, they must have been ignorant. The law of gravity wouldn't allow that. Gravity is an excellent theory. It predicts things very well 99.99999% of the time. But when you turn it into a law for any scientific theory, you've taken a psychological step that's kind of questionable. Scientism is that step. 
some people have heard the word scientism. I find a lot of people haven't. It was coined by sociologists back in the middle of the last century to reflect the fact that a lot of scientists got so attached to the particular findings of science at that time that they thought they were all laws. And they immediately ignored anything that didn't fit with those particular ones. Um, when I first got interested in science, I read a lot of older books on chemistry, because that's all that the city library had. And I read over and over again one of the laws of chemistry. Matter can neither be created nor destroyed. Hmm, what happens in an atomic reaction? Uh, if they had remembered it was a theory, if they had kept going, which they did in, in other areas, they would have realized, no, matter can be created and destroyed under the right circumstances. So scientism, your mind getting fixed, that these are the final laws about the way the universe works, is a form of samsara, a form of both intellectual and emotional samsara. You don't just think things are that way, you get an emotional attachment to it that way. And I understand the emotional attachment. Don't, don't all of us want to think, I'm pretty smart and I know how the world works, and I don't like people who mess with my understanding of that. So one of the things that's very prominent in scientism is the idea that the mind is the brain, period, end of story. One of the things that goes along with scientism is that if somebody tells you something and it's not accepted as scientific truth, it isn't real. I ran into this back in graduate school more than 50 years ago. I wanted to study dreams. I had very vivid dreams myself. Uh, there wasn't that much known about them. My, my professors all discouraged me. You know, and they reminded me, you know, it was only 100 years ago they let us out of the philosophy department, and we want to stay with the sciences. We don't want to have to go back to the philosophy department. And so I was reading all the literature, and I read a book by an English philosopher who proved conclusively and logically that there were no dreams. I had nightmarish dreams about it all night long. <laughs> And then along came a graduate student working with a scientist named Kleitman who found there were brainwave changes at night that correlated with remembering dreams. Overnight, dreams became real, and it was all right for me to do the research. When you get science's blessing, that's a very powerful political move. So I'm optimistic that science and Buddhism, when I say Buddhism, incidentally, I'm really speaking about spiritual paths in general. It's just... Buddhism's the one I'm most familiar with, that science and Buddhism can help each other. They can stimulate each other. They can help to refine things. Um, and I use that word, refine things, with some hesitation because, let's face it, a lot of people are so attached to their particular spiritual belief system, it is all true and even a higher truth. And when you talk about refining, refining means you get rid of some stuff that isn't the best, right? Don't know about messing around like that. So I think these two can help each other, and our theme is convergence. They can come together. But how can science and Buddhism come together? What's convergence? Well, I've said up here in this slide, essential science, the real heart of it, is never-ending process. If you freeze things... If you have an accepted doctrine of beliefs that cannot be questioned, you're not doing science anymore, you're doing scientism. And I think the same thing can happen with Buddhism. 
I'm going to be very selective about Buddhism now, you know. My scholar friends tell me I should never say Buddhism. I should always say Buddhisms because there are so many different variations. But I'm going to select Buddhisms that welcome continuous exploration and discovery and so forth rather than points A, B, C, D, and E are the eternal cosmic truths and the only things you do and you'll go to Vajra hell if you don't do it. Uh, there's not going to be much convergence there. So Buddhism can also be seen as a knowledge acquisition system, refining knowledge, and applying it for the reduction of suffering to enlightenment, to become a bodhisattva to help others and so forth. But once either Buddhism or science becomes a religion or a scientism, we're in trouble. Now, because being okay with science can give such a blessing, we're anxious to have science prove that what we're doing is good. Uh, the trouble is, the science we're turning to toward that a lot of times is scientism. It's very bright people who are locked into a fixed set of beliefs about reality. And so what I'm concerned about is not the convergence of science and Buddhism, as long as they're both open, never-ending processes for refinement, fine, but I'm worried about the submergence of Buddhism in science. I'm worried about wanting that blessing of powerful science so much that we basically throw out a lot of essential aspects of Buddhism. Uh, how do we do that? Well, for instance, Buddhism, we have the Dalai Lama. Interesting man. Bodhisattva. Tibetan Buddhism has the Nechung Oracle. This is a monk who wears a 30-pound crown on his head, has 100 pounds of robes and metal doodangles and whatnot all over his body, and goes into trance and dances like mad, and is possessed by various guardian spirits and prophesies the future in ways that make him the state oracle of Tibet. And the state Chung oracle is usually consulted for any important decisions. Okay, from the perspective of scientism, his Holiness the Dalai Lama is a nice guy, and he knows about some nice mental health techniques for cutting down your amount of worrying, but he is awfully superstitious. You know, he believes in weird stuff like reincarnation and, and blessings and all that kind of stuff. And the nature of Oracle, probably epileptic to be able to dance violently with all that stuff on him, right? 30-pound crown, that would be well, like a, having two bowling balls strapped to your head as well as all sorts of other stuff. Uh, so for some people, converging science and Buddhism means you've got to get rid of stuff like this because scientism has shown that they're just nonsense. Well, I think there's a little bit more to it that. Put it another way, scientism, as I said earlier, thinks the mind is nothing but the action of the brain you got all those cells in there, they're secreting chemicals, sending little electrical impulses around. The result is consciousness coming out of it, and that's it. It's total, mind equals brain, period. Enlightenment? Well, if you scanned it the right way, you would find somebody who was enlightened, whatever that means, don't ask me, would have some particular pattern of electrochemical activity in the brain, and that's all that enlightenment is. It's that particular pattern. Now, I'm sure this is at least partially true, okay? I think it's ridiculous to 
restrict the mind to nothing but the brain, but on the other hand, we use the brain all the time. I think I'm using my brain right now. I have an also have a bad habit of what I refer to the mind of pointing to my head because I've been so thoroughly indoctrinated in that mind equals brain crap. The trouble with totally equating the mind with the brain is it dies. That's a picture of a dead brain. <laughs> Had to do a little searching on Google to find a, a nice dead brain picture. And when the brain dies, consciousness dies and any enlightenment dies also. So enlightenment becomes a nice mental health technique that will reduce your suffering while you're alive. Makes no difference after you're dead whether you were enlightened or not. That's, that's the view of scientism. Okay, now I want to show you some very high quality scientific evidence that shows scientism is a quite incomplete picture of what human beings are and there's reason to take spiritual realities much more seriously. Let's switch from the Nechum Oracle. I wanted a picture of the Potala, but it would have made the slide too crowded. To another big building, SRI International, a major think tank out in, Palo in Menlo Park on the West Coast. To a man named Pat Price, who was a remote viewer. That's the term we give him. Pat Price was not a spiritual man who'd had years of monastic training or something. He was a businessman who was a little into politics and had been elected police commissioner in his particular town. And sometimes he helped the police in his town catch criminals. He'd call them and say, I got, an, I got an idea that if you looked in such and such a place. Sounds like total nonsense from a scientific point of view, of course. But anyway, Pat Price was in remote viewing experiments at Stanford Research Institute. And these remote viewing experiments, after an initial start, were sponsored not by the Tibetan government, but by various intelligence gathering agencies, the CIA, DARPA, uh, branches of the army and so forth, because they also thought, you know, it's a good idea to know what people who have a lot of weapons are doing. So the CIA is part of trying to find out, is this stuff really any good? I mean, they knew ahead of time it couldn't possibly be good, but they felt they ought to test it. They said, okay, can you get Pat to tell us what's here? Now, don't whip out your smartphone. This was back in the early 1970s. You would have had to work hard to find the right kind of world atlas. You know, there were a few people who knew coordinate systems enough to probably know. Well, this is in Asia, and it's in the north, might be Siberia, but that's not very specific at all. But anyway, this was a place 10,000 miles away from SRI. And they asked Pat, you know, tell us what you see there. Pat said he went there, he was hovering up in the air above, he saw various kinds of things, and he drew, he had a ruler available, he drew a sketch of one of the things he saw. He said, this is really weird, this is a giant gantry. It's so big, there's a track on each side of it and it runs right over a building. This thing is so big. Uh, I've never seen anything that huge. And he went on about it that way. Okay, they sent this information back to the CIA who said, oh, this is kind of interesting. Uh, our satellites, except they couldn't show what the satellite view actually showed because if it got, the photo got out, it would show the Soviets how capable our satellites were. So they had an artist redraw it. 
Yeah, at this place, there is a big gantry that runs on a couple of tracks past this building here. This is getting kind of interesting. But the CIA said, well, but what we're really interested in is what's going on in these buildings. You know, the spy satellites will tell you there's buildings somewhere. They're not very good at telling you anything about them. So Pat did a little more remote viewing. And he said, oh, this is really weird. There are these steel gores, these things kind of like peels of an orange strip or something like that. They're about 14 feet long. They're steel. They're having trouble. They want to weld, weld them together into a sphere, and they're having trouble welding stuff that's so huge and thick and something like that. CIA said, thank you. That was all anybody heard for a while until many years later when another intelligent picture showed they'd finally figured out how to weld these things together. And I don't know how accurate this is, but the theory was this was developing a weapon where you set off a small atomic bomb inside this, let all the radiation out through one narrow slit and could take a satellite out of the sky, like spy satellites. This made the uh, CIA considerably interested. So they, among other things, financed this research for a long time. And then when it came out of secrecy some 20 years later, and they were forced to admit that they'd given some money, they said, oh yeah, but we never learned anything useful. Okay, that's why they kept funding it for 20 years. Now, I've shown you an exceptionally good example of remote viewing. Most of the stuff you do with extrasensory perception in the lab is nowhere near this good. It's statistically significant and all that, but Pat was extremely good. And the CIA was very unhappy when he died quite suddenly under mysterious circumstances. Rumors went around. That's when they had Bulgarian agents who had umbrellas with a cyanide tip. Uh, I don't know if any of that's true. So the usual stuff in the lab is weaker, but there is a lot of very rigorous scientific research done to the highest standards to show that the human mind can do things that you can't imagine a human brain doing. And I'm going to tell you quickly what those things are. This rigorous research, totally unknown to most scientists because they know ahead of time that this can't happen, so why waste their time looking at the research, shows that it's reasonable to consider spiritual aspects of human beings as well as just material ones. So the idea that the brain is the mind that's a, that's a theory, and it's partially true. As I said, I think, I think I'm using my brain right now as part of what I'm doing, but it's incomplete. There's a lot more that we need. Now, let me put a bit of caution in here. This does not mean that anything and everything labeled psychic and spiritual is true. There's an enormous amount of nonsense and just plain out-and-out out fraud out there. So we still have to show a lot of discrimination. Okay. Now my miracle. I'll summarize 130 years of research findings in less than 10 minutes. Uh, I have to skim tremendously. For those who want a more detailed look, I put out a book in 2009, The End of Materialism. came out at the same time, the big stock market crash. My publisher thought, maybe you'll people think it's a book about finances and buy millions of copies, but it doesn't work that way. <laughs> Anyway, they have a few copies back there. I think it is going out of print, except I was smart enough to keep the ebook rights so it will continue to be available as an ebook. But the publisher only has, 
I don't know, a couple of dozen copies left and they don't plan a paperback. Uh, so the conclusion of this book, with all the details for the stuff I'm going to tell you, is, as I said earlier, it is reasonable, logical, sensible, supported by empirical evidence to be both spiritual and scientific in your approach to life. Still use lots of discrimination, lots of nonsense in both fields, but there's things that happen that are relevant. And I've divided those things to happen into two categories. They're what I call the big five. These are five psychic phenomena for which I think there is so much high quality evidence that anybody who says they don't exist to me is ignorant or stupid. Uh, and there's, of course, a believer like you would say something like that, okay, but they, they don't look at the evidence. And then there are a number of things which I call the many maybes. These are things for which there's enough evidence that I think they should be taken seriously and researched a lot more, but I'm not quite willing, most other parapsychologists would not be quite willing to say, oh yes, we've definitely proven those things. One of these things is what's commonly called telepathy, mind-to-mind -mind communication. Somebody thinks something, somebody else picks it up. The experiments you do, what a person thinks is determined by a random process. You make sure there's no means of sensory communication available. You have an objective way of scoring it and so forth. And you get enough hits over what you'd expect by just chance that something is happening. The remote viewing I showed you is, example, is an example of clairvoyance the direct knowing of the state of the physical world, whether it's somebody else's, in somebody else's mind or not. I don't think anybody was happening to fly over that spot that Pat Price was looking at the gantry from, um, but you can easily set this up to eliminate telepathy at a time. <sighs> telepathy, mind-to-mind -mind transmission of the masters, from a scientific point of view, total nonsense. Maybe a contact eye like we had in the 60s when Everybody was getting high, but, you know, no, nothing woo-woo. Well, I don't know if there's telepathy, who knows. Uh, clairvoyance, expanded knowledge of what's going on in the world that might be useful to helping people spiritually evolve. Could be. Precognition. This is one of the big five, and frankly, I hate it. Because there's so much evidence for people being able to sometimes predict the future when the future is determined by random processes. It cannot be logically predicted, and it happens. But I cannot wrap my mind around that. I mean, I know the evidence. I have to admit it. That's one of the things about the discipline of science. If there's evidence, you have to take something seriously. But I can't make any sense of that. How can my mind know the future? Uh, those are three kinds of information pickup. Psychokinesis, PK, the direct influence of the mind on matter. St. Joseph of Cupertino as an outstanding example that nobody wants to believe. I mean, you know, could you folks really tell if somebody was floating 10 feet up in the air? You'd probably all be hallucinating, right? You can't trust anybody on that. So you do it in the laboratory and you don't get people who can float up, but you get computers that change their random outputs and things like that. Psychokinesis happens also. And psychic healing might be a form of psychokinesis applied to biological systems, but there's now a lot of studies to show that intending biological preparations ranging from bacterial cultures to people can heal faster if they get the right sort of intentions. 
Me and my colleagues are all very nice people. We do not do experiments on can we kill people that way. And frankly, the idea freaks me out. And I don't hope it's not true. But it's been a human belief for a long time. The many maybes. Let me get a little more specific now since I've been going very fast here and give you something to think about. Out-of-the-body experiences. An out-of-the-body experience, the word is used somewhat confusing, but an out-of-the-body experience means you become conscious and you find yourself somewhere where you know your physical body is not and yet your mind is perfectly clear. Your mind feels pretty much like it does now if you knew that actually your body is back home lying in bed. They happen, 10% of people, something like that, uh, a lot of people suppress them afterwards, that's too weird. A lot of other people say, wow, I don't believe that I'm going to survive bodily death. I know it. I was alive and well outside my own body. You may quarrel with it as an outsider, but it has a tremendous effect on people's belief systems. Years ago, our babysitter, after she knew we were safe people to talk to, started telling my wife and I about our out-of-the-body experiences. Ever since she was a kid, it was normal for her to once in a while wake up during the night, find herself floating near the ceiling, see herself lying asleep in bed, float there for a few seconds, fall back asleep, wake up in the morning and go to school. She just thought that was a normal part of sleep, you know? Uh, she eventually learned to keep her mouth shut, that it was not a normal part of sleep. And I was able to... Well, she asked me, you know, is that real? And I told her, well, it might be a special kind of dream like a lucid dream. You're not really out of your body. Or maybe you're up there. So why don't you take 10 slips of paper, write the numbers 1 to 10 on them, shuffle them up so you can't see them, put them in a box after you go to bed, reach out, lay one out on the table, but don't look in that way. But if you float up near the ceiling, memorize the number, check in the morning, see if you were right. I saw her a few weeks later. She said she'd done it seven or eight times. She was always right. Was there anything else interesting we could do? <laughs> and I was doing sleep research at the time, so I took her into my sleep laboratory because I know these things were often associated with people almost dying. So I was very curious about what was going on in her body. So she slept through the night with her EEG and some autonomic physiological measures being done. I could peek in any time through the observation window. But after she was in bed, I told her, see that shelf up there? I'm going to go off in the other room, uh, generate a five-digit random number. I did that by throwing a coin over my shoulder at the Rand book of a million random digits. If you ever have trouble sleeping at night, there is a book with a million random numbers. <laughs> right? Take the five right above where the coin landed, put them there. Uh, she had several out-of-the-body experiences. She'd wake up afterwards and said, I think it took me about two minutes to wake up, but I was for a minute. Only once did she say she was in position to see what was on the shelf, and she correctly told me, oh, yeah, the number's 25187. That was correct. Ah. Uh, then she moved across the country, and that was the end of that research. I was still young then and I naively thought, oh, lots of scientists will start doing this kind of research. This is so exciting. Uh -uh. But it demonstrated that you could take something as exotic as an out-of-the-body experience and learn something about it in the laboratory. And, oh, her physiology, she was not near death, okay? This is her pattern associated with out-of-the-body experiences there. 
Um, I didn't recognize it, so I took these tracings to one of the world's leading experts on sleep EEGs, and we had 100% agreement. Both of us looked at it and said, huh, that's funny looking. <laughs> but, you know, at least, you know, I, there, there'd be no need for a clinician to call a crash cart because this woman was near death. But then let's jump to near-death experiences as part of the many maybes. A near-death experience often starts with an out-of-the-body experience, but not necessarily. But then the thing that distinguishes a near-death experience is there's a big change in the quality of consciousness. Uh, the person will tell you they can't really explain it, words won't adequately describe it, they get new kinds of knowledge they couldn't know ordinarily. We, we all know about near-death experiences now. They have them on TV all the time. Uh, that, again, convinces people that they're going to survive death in some form and usually starts them on a spiritual quest as they try to take what they can remember of what they learned and integrate it into their life. And it turns out for most of them it's very hard because people think, you must be crazy. You know, uh, you, you better see a psychiatrist. You, uh, you talk to God? Come on, God doesn't talk to Baptists or, you know, whatever people's particular prejudices are. But again, there have been several million people now who've had near-death experiences because of remarkable advances in resuscitation technology. Most of these people would have died. Do not try this at home, okay? Most of the people who have near-death experiences, the nearness they get, they usually get buried. ADCs, after-death communications, a lot of people report that after a loved one dies within the first year, more than 50% of people say, something happened that made me think they were giving me a message that they were all right. You know, I suddenly smelled my husband's favorite tobacco in the room and there hadn't been any there for a year. Or I woke up in the night and she was standing at the foot of my bed to tell me that she was all right. And it wasn't a dream. It didn't feel like a dream. You know, many, many things like this. That's tremendously important to the people who have them, not very evidential from the outside, because, of course, if you want to be scientific, you could say, you know, these, these people are grieving, they're hallucinating, whatnot, whatnot. But there's a whole category of people called mediums who claim to be able to go into a trance state where they contact the dead. Most of what they produce is comforting to survivors. I'm all right, don't worry about me. To eat good food and whatnot but not very impressive to the rest of us because it's kind of vague. You know, your Uncle Joe says to remember that he loved you. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but some of these apparent surviving spirits give very specific communications. Oh yeah, the will you can't find, it's on the back of that bureau drawer, third one down out in the garage that I keep my tools in. Oh, there it is. Uh, gets interesting. And finally, for all the Buddhists in the audience, reincarnation. Colleagues of mine at the University of Virginia now have collected through field work close to 5,000 cases, about half of which are now adequately analyzed, where some kid, generally somewhere between three and six years old, will start saying something like, you can't give that to me to eat, Mommy. My people don't eat that kind of food. That's uh, lousy stuff. That's, that's forbidden by our religion. Or take, I want to see my wife, not you, or something like that. 
and they come up with sufficient details that the investigators are able to locate someone who died within the last few years who has those characteristics, including sometimes spectacular things like, you know, the, the kid names a village 50 miles away and they take them there and there's a crowd of people and the kid says, Bob, or well, whatever an Indian equivalent of Bob is. Rajesh, you know, and runs them and recognizes people. Gets very interesting sometimes. That recent book about the kid who had nightmares about crashing in a plane, can't quite remember the name of it, was a very evidential one that way. Any of you who are old enough to remember the Search for Bridie Murphy book years ago, too, was actually a pretty evidential case, which showed that people go nuts when they hear the word reincarnation. All of those are part of the many maybes. So, you know, just to sum up, here's the things that will not fit in a totally materialistic view. Telepathy, clairvoyance, precognition, psychokinesis, psychic healing, all of which with hundreds of experiments showing that these things happen sometimes. The many maybes, out-of-the-body experiences, near-death experiences, after-death communications, mediumship, reincarnation, and so forth. A lot of very interesting material there. Properly used, science can probably improve the methods and understandings that we used to try to grow in a spiritual kind of sense. At the same time, we have to realize scientists are not enlightened people. There is samsaric as the rest of us. A lot of them are caught in scientism. This is threatening stuff, so it will tend to be thrown away. Or you have to kind of soft pedal it in order to not get rejected. So if you say, well, look, I got these, these Tibetans and, you know, they're really superstitious, but they can keep their minds still for a long time, and that's good for EEG studies. Uh, you know, you can get some, but, but realize then you're playing politics. Don't get confused about what the reality is beyond this. I think that any belief system which excludes parts of what is real is going to have consequences in terms of unnecessary suffering, lack of development of potential, and so forth. So we need to make this convergence, but I wanted to remind you that there's more to it than just EEGs and falling in, being submerged in conventional science. I don't want that to happen. I don't know how to advise you on how to play the politics correctly. I'm not a particularly political animal, but it's interesting and it's necessary. And with that, I think I'll leave the floor open for discussion and questions. Hi, um, I was a graduate student at UC Davis, and I was one of the original researchers on the Shamada Project. Ah. And I just finished a five-year period at Johns Hopkins studying psychedelics. Mm -hmm. And seeing you speak and feeling this connection with all of what you started feels like this total recognition moment. And I just want to thank you so much, because when I kind of started on this path, it felt a little bit like I was doing it on my own. Uh, and now I realize there's all of this lineage here. And just thank you so much, because what you have done has paved the way for people like me who feel crazy, but are kind of stuck in the science and doing it anyway. Um, so yeah, I just... This well, is, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure.
I'm not sure about being part of a lineage. I am still trying to think of myself as a young rebel, but say <laughs> la vie. Well, you look great. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Hi, Dr. Tart. Um, do, you, do you feel like there's a danger? Because I understand that you're trying to sort of move the pendulum back to center, you know, in, in the sense that mm-hmm. there's an extreme of sort of superstitious lunacy that you want to avoid, and there's the extreme of scientism. Um, but do you feel, how do you keep the pendulum truly center? Because the, the thing that struck me was when you were, when you were talking about reincarnation, you know, when I hear that there's, with very compelling evidence, a little girl somewhere who is experiencing the memories that appear to be the memories of some earlier mind, it, it seems to me that if you really want it to be parsimonious with trying to understand that, you wouldn't necessarily need to posit things like, this is the same person, this is the continuation of the consciousness of that person. That seems to be bringing in a bunch of concepts that come from spiritual tradition but aren't required, they're not mandated by what we're seeing. If you want it to be as parsimonious as possible, you would say that this current mind is experiencing memories that appear because of this evidence to have been experienced first by some other mind. So do you feel like there's a danger that because what we're verifying also has some roots in spiritual traditions that we're almost, without even realizing it, importing concepts that aren't required by the data that we're seeing? Sure. I mean, that's, importing concepts is what our human, was it going to say brain or mind? I was pointing. <laughs> it's what we do. Uh, that's one of the jobs of the brain, to kind of keep bringing up information that might be relevant to the system, the, the situation that we're in. But I think the only, to, I know there's the idea of, of conceptless perception and whatnot. Maybe it can happen, I don't know. But meanwhile, back at the ranch, I think what we can do is be less attached to our particular concepts. Um, I particularly, th- th- this is what I want to st- stress, because my own personality is such that when I was a kid, I suffered a lot, like most kids. And not much I could do about it, except I discovered I could think a pleasant thought. And that would make things better. And if I thought two or three pleasant thoughts, it was even better. And if I thought nice, interesting, exciting thoughts 24-7, I was happy, but incredibly shallow. And very (laughs) attached to those particular concepts. Those of you who know the Enneagram will know I'm a type 7. So what I've had to learn is, yeah, the thoughts are not going to stop. But I can simply say, okay, this is my thought at the moment. Might be true, might not be true. The thing I love about science and what, why it's a good discipline for people like me is it says no matter how interesting your thought, how fashionable, check out what actually happens in terms of consequences. You know, So a classical theory of aeronautics proved logically that bumblebees can't fly. They, they don't have enough wing area for their mass. Fortunately, the bumblebees don't understand the theory. So, you know, every idea is probably useful some places. You know, and I like tool analogies also, okay? I I never go anywhere without my Swiss Army knife. But I don't worship it. I've even left it at home once. Well, I have to leave it at home when I get on an airplane. But that's that's the best thing I can say, that we're going to generate the theories, the ideas, the beliefs, try to be less attached to them. Thank you. 
One more, okay. Okay, I'll try to be quick. Uh, the experiment where the woman read the number on the plate. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's really impressive. It seems to me like if, if you could have repeated that and documented it carefully and pushed it, somebody else would eventually come look at it. And if enough people looked at it over time, it would have to be recognized. And if it was recognized, it would change our whole cultural view of reality. So why didn't that happen? I love you, idealists. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you two responses to that. One, if I had repeated it and publicized it more, I probably never would have gotten tenure. And as it was, I had to fight terribly to get a tenured position. Uh, and secondly, some people are now looking at out-of-the-body experiences, but they're looking from a scientific perspective in a desperate attempt to explain them away. Okay, so like it's, it's Blanky, I think, is one of the neurophysiologists he found. He stimulates a particular area of somebody's brain. The woman felt her arm was sticking out in some really weird position. She says, that's what out-of-the-body experiences are out. I never heard of an out-of-the-body experience where someone was feeling their arms sticking out. There is, you know, out-of-the-body experiences are becoming well enough known that there really is a desperate attempt to explain them away. And I can understand that. I always look at alternatives. When I, when I write up my own experiments, I always have a section on what could have been done better, what's a possible loophole that people have to watch out for. But things move on and... There is not a National Institute of Out-of-the-Body Experiment Studies yet, unfortunately. Good idea, though. Thank you. Thank you all. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.